You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends. So, hey, I know we've got a lot of uh, new listeners, but for my kind of old-time faithful crew, you know that the majority of this podcast is simply about helping us name and notice anxiety in leadership, in the home place. And uh, if you listen carefully, you know that I'm heavily informed by family systems theory. That's kind of the lens through which we provide this uh, podcast. And Honestly, my, my favorite thing is to find people I find interesting, see if they'll come on the show, and then uh, ask them to teach us. And it's very rare that I actually have somebody who is well-versed in the Enneagram. And that describes my guest today, AJ Sherrill. Uh, you might know AJ because he's written a number of books. You also might know him as the former lead pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church there in Michigan. Uh, AJ is currently uh, one of the leaders there at St. Peter's Church in South Carolina, recently made the shift to that church. And also, whether we get into it or not in the podcast, recently jumped into Anglicanism. I have been fascinated by Anglicanism for a long time. Bishop Todd Hunter is a former guest on the show. Just a great community of people. So uh, I just find that intriguing. But AJ just recently released a book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. And the way I've explained it is really Enneagram and systems theory, some of these tools, they're kind of just different ways into the same house. Like you're just climbing through a different window to get into the same house, which is really the house of trying to understand what makes you tick, trying to understand how you get in your own way. And, and mostly, how do you encounter the grace of God? And so to assist me in this interview, I brought along my friend and, and co-laborer, Jimmy Carnes. Jimmy's on staff with us at Discovery. He's also one of the certified coaches in my MLA and Capable Life materials. Jimmy's also the guy that we all go to on staff when we want to learn about the Enneagram. He's done by far the most work on our team. So uh, I'm going to hand over to Jimmy now as Jimmy interviews AJ and I'll be the sidekick. And then fear not, friends, we will still inflict upon AJ the gauntlet of anxiety questions. So without further ado, welcome AJ and I'm going to hand over to Jimmy. Yeah, what a gift to be a part of this conversation with you. So AJ, I, I read your book and I, I'll have to say that right out of the gate, I really appreciated the tone in which you approach this material. You start off chapter one and two with, I love the Enneagram and I hate the Enneagram. Actually, I've got that reversed. You started off with, I hate the Enneagram. And I just, I, I read through the book and really enjoyed your tone. But the first question I, I think I have is you talk about the Enneagram later in the book about being a starting point of evangelism. Can you talk about how much you have to explain or get out of the way before things start becoming helpful, whether you're talking to somebody who already knows the Enneagram and has landed themselves into one of the categories that you talk about in chapter one, like how much do you have to break them out of that thinking and show how useful it can be? Or the flip side, somebody who doesn't know it at all, how much of it do you think needs to be explained right out of the gate? Uh, If I understand your question correctly, do you mean like how much of the Enneagram they need to know? Yeah, I, I kind of put four questions in one question, so I probably should work on that. Yeah. But uh, probably the first question, we'll just break it down. When you when you use it as a starting point for evangelism, like you talk about in the book, um, let's start with somebody who already knows the Enneagram and is using it to put people in boxes or just another group to identify or disidentify with. Can you still then use it and break them out of that thinking and show them how this actually uh, connects them to our creator or finding out oh, I see. 
what is it that's in them that's keeping them from believing the good news of Jesus? Yeah, I, I think the Enneagram um, for me is a tool. And if it's helpful, great. If it's not, chuck it. Like I am not an evangelist of making sure everybody loves the Enneagram. It's just an access point into um, our own selves and into some of the things that we like to keep sort of hidden away and quiet. I, I would say the that chapter on evangelism has the presupposition that many people find the Enneagram interesting or they are aware of it, whether they are followers of Jesus or not. And so with that, that initial phase, uh, I think evangelism can become really helpful if the person you're talking to is aware of their personality and where they lie in the Enneagram because of just the ease of which it introduces us into our own brokenness. So, you know, I don't know that I would go into my office and hope everyone would take up the Enneagram. I think what we find as we are in the office or in the neighborhood or wherever is that more and more people know about this thing. And it's through that common understanding that we can talk about brokenness again. Because, you know, when you start bringing up sin with your neighbor or the human condition with your neighbor, conversations can really quickly shut down because of all sorts of assumptions that they've experienced through whatever, whatever. But I think the Enneagram gives us all sorts of access points to own the fact that we're not fully whole and we can sort of reveal our own cards of this is how I feel in my personality I have a long way to go. And by the way, here's how the grace of God is helping me in my journey. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So when you meet somebody who, let's say, doesn't believe in Jesus, but also isn't aware of the Enneagram, when you start bringing up, you know, using it as a launch point of, of talking about our brokenness, how specific do you need to be? You know, are you talking about the underlying wisdom of the Enneagram? Or are you actually starting to call out numbers and saying, hey, you might look into this thing that would help you understand your particular lens in which you view the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know that would be my first suggestion is, hey, go do this personality theory and then we can talk. I I think as the conversation develops, um, you can reveal how helpful it has been for you as a sort of way to invite people to explore their own personality through this theory if they're interested. Most people have taken personality theories or have studied them, whether it's Myers-Briggs or Strengths Finders or whatever it is. So most people uh, are deeply curious and slash narcissistic, myself included. So many people want to know how they function a little bit more. Um, so that's not usually like a conversation stopper. But I, I wouldn't also like I'm really clear in my workshops like, hey, listen, people don't become the Enneagram church or don't become the Enneagram organization. Because if that becomes your lexicon, then people feel like outsiders that don't know this secret code and it creates all sorts of division. So, you know, I, I don't know that, that the evangelism strategy is like a massive like push to make sure everyone gets the Enneagram in your office. But it's to say, hey, on the route, on the, on the road of any relationship, if people know it, utilize it as access to talk about our need for grace. And if they don't know it, talk about it in your own story as a way of maybe helping them become curious about maybe naming some things in their own life that they're not yet aware of. And I mean, that's why this tool is so helpful is it, it names for us things that we consciously and subconsciously keep hidden to where you start to feel it at like a visceral level. Oh, wow, that's me. I feel caught. <laughs> I feel like someone's read my journal. And that can be really beautiful as an entryway into discovering more about who we are and growing into who God is making us into be. Yeah. You mentioned in your book, when you first encountered the Enneagram, it was with Richard Rohr. Um, so I, I imagine he's had an influence on, you know, your pursuit of this material. But who else would you say 
uh, as you've pursued it? Like, where else did you go? You've obviously referenced uh, Riso and Palmer and Stabile and Sandra's in your, in your book, but who would be your biggest influence, I guess? Yeah, I mean, Richard um, started me on the journey years ago when I was I was taking a doctorate course with him. And then soon after, Suzanne and um, Suzanne Stabile and Ian Cron, that is, before they came out with their seminal book, um, I spent some time with them when they were sort of preparing all that material. But I'll tell you, Mark Scandrett, uh, I teach uh, doctorate uh, Enneagram uh, and discipleship with him at Fuller Seminary. And he has had a profound impact on just the creativity of using this tool. Like he looks at it through the lens of the Beatitudes, um, also the fruit of the spirit. And he just has such a creative spirit into like how to use this tool, um, not as an end, but as a means, which is my heart as well. So Mark Scandrett is actually right now coming out with some great material on that. And he's out in San Francisco. I was going to ask you, so he's, he's dropping a book on the Enneagram because he does have some remarkable work on formation and, and emotional health. But that's that's interesting. What's his book going to be focused on? The Beatitudes. And uh, we've done workshops together where he's t- taken a segment of it and just absolutely has done an awesome sort of work into understanding how the Enneagram intersects with the Beatitudes. Uh, that's very cool. Yeah, while you guys were talking, I was looking at my notes. I, I don't know where this is going to go, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed the quote you posted at the beginning of chapter four, which is uh, says, what you are thinking every moment of every day becomes a physical reality in your brain and body. And and you fleshed that out in chapter four on how that really, where the rubber hits the road and you talked about Adam and Eve. Is there anything uh, you can unpack that for the listeners here of just the heart behind really how important it is to understand ourselves and the way we perceive information and how that informs what news we're going to choose to receive, whether it's the good news of the gospel or some less good news that we tend to believe automatically. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that has to even to go back to being transformed by the renewing of our minds. I just finished a book for Baker on contemplative spirituality, where we actually look at how prayer and neurology come together and what's actually happening that we can show through EEGs that there's actually brain activity that fires through contemplative prayer that something's happening. There are accesses to parts of our brain that are being uh, shaped and formed through what we all know now is neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change and rethink patterns. And I think that a lot of this has to do with identity. So like when we get our identity right, it really shapes the way we think about ourselves. And no longer is our personality like a detriment to our soul. We can actually begin to look at ourselves, to laugh at ourselves, to cry with ourselves, to become aware without feeling like our identity is being sort of pulled out from under us. So uh, I begin this book by talking about how we are a beloved child of God, and that's never up for negotiation. Like that's, it's not like God is, is dangling a kind of uh, sentence over us based on how we perform as to whether or not we're loved or we're a child of God or not. And when we get that right, a lot of our personality, you know, there is nothing learned um, without repetition, like repetition, repetition, repetition is the way in which we change, grow and learn. It's how our memories work. And so understanding who we are in Christ is massive in our identity that allows us then to rethink the messages that, you know, are being sent to us and that we make up about ourselves as we navigate life. I mean, I hear people all the time as a, as a pastor who, you know, are like, Oh, I'll never change. This will never happen for me. These things will never Uh, These will always be this way, right? You hear these kinds of pronouncements over ourselves. And the reality of it is that when it comes to our personality, 
we can make transformational choices that don't necessarily change our personality, but that make us healthy or unhealthy. And so I don't know that the goal is to change our personality. I think the goal is to say, how are the messages that I send to myself and that I'm receiving from others? How do they help me move toward health rather than toward unhealth in my life? Because we're always moving toward one uh, sort of direction or the other. I found a lot of people, AJ, if, if you encourage them to pause and reflect, they are able to name the voice of their inner critic. I think a lot of what you're describing is that internal narrative or the story we tell ourselves. But it's it's quite disturbing to me how many people just simply don't pause to even consider it. They're just so in its grip. What are a couple of early steps that you recommend for folks to get in touch with the story they're telling themselves so they can figure out, am I on the path to health or unhealth? Yeah, I mean, I think some of this has to do with slowing down. Um, we're not in a society that encourages us to take space and time to be. Uh, I think sometimes that's a subconscious strategy because we're afraid of what might lurk there, uh, which is, again, coming back to the identity conversation. If we know who we are in Christ and that's not up for negotiation, then we can bravely look at those things without fear. Um, so some of it has to do with the pace and, you know, robust Sabbath, being with God, all that stuff. But the other part is actually having people on the journey with you that can actually give you feedback without you being sort of insecure that you have one or two people in your life, whether it's your spouse, your best friend, your father, whomever that you give absolute permission to once a month to give you some feedback. Like, how am I showing up? What are you experiencing from me? Who, who do I, who, who am I giving you evidence that I think I am in this season of life? Um, what do you make up about the choices that I've been making around XYZ? Those sorts of conversations, we don't typically give people permission to poke around. Again, I think it's because we're afraid of, of what might be there. And so hiding is what we've been doing since Genesis 3. Yeah. So you talk very clearly about a rooted identity. Has that been a struggle for you as a pastor? Uh, oftentimes people Huge. in vocational ministry. Can, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I identify as an Enneagram three. And so I'm only as good as my last sermon. Um, I want to manage how people feel about me. Uh, I can avoid conflict because what if that makes me appear to be um, a person that is just sort of dramatic. My resume, my degrees, my latest book, all of that stuff is huge. And again, getting back to the identity piece, I often feel like my identity is up for negotiation, that I have to somehow perform. That's why um, passages like John 15 of abiding are so huge for me. But pastorally, it creates a lot of mischief if my eyes aren't focused on Christ and that my job isn't to manage the crowds. It's to please the master. It's to submit to the lordship of Jesus and to say, um, help me bring these people along to follow you. And that, um, that I don't have to be perfect and I don't have to be impressive. You know, it's Andre Nowen is so good at bringing those categories as I, you know, what people think about us, you know, what people uh, make up is true about us, how spectacular we're trying to be. All of those things get in the way of the pastoral vocation of what we're actually called to do. Yeah, you in chapter four, you kind of pass over it pretty quickly here, but I, I paused because I found it pretty profound. You talk about Adam and Eve, and I'll quote it. It says, what is clear is that my tendency to distrust God and act on my own authority 
is the same temptation that Adam and Eve face in the garden. Like them, I eat from the fruit of autonomy almost daily, experiencing shame and self-condemnation, needing to be regularly restored to fellowship with a loving God. I thought that that was just a, I mean, it's what we're talking about here. It's, it's finding our identity, but then also once we know what our identity is, it's being regularly restored to fellowship with a loving God, because that's the repetition that we need to remind ourselves that this gospel that we believe is actually true versus all the messages we, we decide to believe otherwise. It also puts us in the sort of sacramental imagination. If I could speak mystically for a second, it's, it's the difference between um, taking the bread and receiving the bread. Like I often want to take the bread metaphorically in my life, to take the role, to take the status, to take the honor, whatever that is, rather than to gently receive that which God has for me. And the sacramental imagination is the reminder for me every week that I receive from Christ, that that is my greatest call as a pastor, not to take, to try to earn and be spectacular for people. So speaking of these things that we can either take or receive, you 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 mentioned these upstream and downstream and then uh, church calendar focus dates for each of the numbers, which I thought was really interesting. Can you help us understand how you arrived at those and how did you stumble upon, you know, even those, that framework? Yeah, Dallas Willard says it a lot um, that, or he said it a lot, there's a difference between effort and earning. And spiritual practices and growth in our personality toward health, it takes effort. Uh, when I talk about receiving that which God has given us, it doesn't mean that we're passive and we just kind of are numb and uh, sort of ambivalent. We have an active role to play in receiving uh, who God has made us to be. And part of that is, is taking spiritual practices and, and, and really um, not earning God's sort of approval on us, but but having an effort to grow. And the way I, I stumbled upon those is years ago, I was a pastor in New York City. And when I had first stumbled into the Enneagram, I started doing surveys for my dissertation on what practices made people come alive. And so I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in New York City that were telling me about practices that were bringing them life in the midst of the city. And when we would divide up into our enneotypes, I started to see major themes kind of sort of surface from people. And so that quickly became a dissertation I did years ago. And from that place, I started to develop the idea of upstream and downstream. And your upstream practices, imagine you're in a river. Your upstream practices are those practices that you're going to have to swim against the current. You know, so like for me as an Enneagram three, the last thing I want to do is sit and be still and be contemplative with centering prayer or Lexio Divina with God in the morning. I want to achieve. I want to read the book. I want to study the Bible. I want to finish my sort of study, whatever that is. I want to achieve things. And that's not bad. But that's the upstream practice where God is calling me to be still. The downstream practice are those things that come naturally for you. So like practices aren't always supposed to be hard or like grind against us. There are practices that we do that we love that bring us into the joy of what it means to be in the presence of God and others. And so for me as an Enneagram 3, I love to study. I love to learn. I love to grow in that way. I love to exercise. And so those two, I think, are really helpful. You need practices that are going to challenge what you want to do because they have something there for you. And you also need practices that are naturally what you love to do with God. Now, what happens in the life of a disciple is we typically circle what we're good at and we ignore the rest. So like, let's take the Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some of us are, it comes really naturally to love the Lord your God with your mind. But 
maybe you never actually do anything of mercy and justice in the world. Or some of us love to affection and worship with God with the heart, but we haven't read a book in like six years to challenge our theology. So it's the integration of these things which make us fully human. And that I think is really helpful for our practices. So when when you were writing the descriptions, I've, I've read several books on the Enneagram. And one of the sections that I always find fascinating is when people in their own words describe each number, right? They give you, you know, a, a, some sort of a snapshot of, this is what this number is. And inevitably, I imagine it's difficult to find an example that captures the heart of what the number is without alienating people that don't precisely relate with that particular example. Um, this is just out of my own interest. You know, how much did you struggle or painstakingly write these descriptions in order to make sure that the example wasn't too extreme to alienate some of this? Like, well, that's not me. I'm not that, you know, but that, but it is, right? How do you, how did you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my Enneagram work is a mashup of what I perceive to be the best scholarship out there. And so it gives you kind of a wider road rather than this perspective, you know, that this is the the only way to think about this number or whatever. Like Beatrice Chestnut is just so good, as is Helen Palmer and Riso. Like when you fuse some of these people, like none of the personality stuff, like I didn't invent that. That's not unique to me. It's been around for so long. So how do we actually sort of put accessible scholarship on display that gives us kind of a wider path. And so I think for people to have a few more options and like not everyone's had the same childhood wound to forge their personality. So a lot of people can check out of the type because they didn't experience XYZ as a child. And so that can't be me. And it's like, well, that can sometimes accelerate that personality, but that doesn't have to define every personality that you can or can't fit within this type because you did or didn't experience that as a child. And so it's important, I think, to give people a bit of a wide road for each type so that they can self-select. And they also need to know that all of the types are in them, you know? So there is a bit of relating on almost all of them for us because they're all part of us imaging God back to God. And so all of those are in us to some degree or another. What would be your advice to somebody who knows their number? They maybe know perfectly enough about and they wanted to pursue it further. What would be their next steps? Would you send them to read books? Would you send them to a seminar? Would they go get direct coaching? What would be steps for somebody to pursue it further? I mean, it really depends on what they wanted to use it for. And again, like the Enneagram isn't an end, it's a means. The question isn't, do you know the Enneagram? The question is, what do you use it for? How is it helpful? What does it open up for you to then step into? So a lot of my workshops, I talk to people about, like I just did one for Chick-fil-A. It was about moving toward leadership. So how does every type invite us into understanding our leadership fit, uh, some of the challenges that we pose as leaders and some of the ways in which we struggle to be led. As well as for most churches, uh, they want to know how do I grow within my personality? So how do I understand practices that shape me toward the goal in which God has called me to be like Jesus? And so it just depends. For for romance, people are always wanting to know. I'm doing a, a dating workshop here in a few weeks on using the Enneagram. And uh, this particular conference wants to know like, hey, should I be looking for a certain type of person? All of that stuff. So um, that can be really helpful to be wheeled but I'm really, uh, one of the, the drums that I beat really loudly is that if you don't work your number, to use um, Adele Calhoun's language, if you don't work your number, you're wasting your time. Like the idea of the Enneagram is to work your number, to figure out where you land so that you can move beyond that into health. The goal isn't to size anyone up, put anyone in a corner, or to shrink yourself down. It's to be expansive with it, to figure out how this can be helpful for my journey ahead. 
Oh man, that's that's really good. I think you just already answered this. My question really was, can you flesh out how the Enneagram helps us identify where we're taking things into our own hands versus submitting to God's plan? It might just be an extrapolation of what you already said. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I first studied it with Father Rohr, I said, hey, listen, I sort of identify with three or four of these uh, as majors. What would you say to me to locate? And he, he said to me, someone I'll never forget. He said, AJ, it is where you sense the greatest amount of humiliation. Hmm. Now, that's really bad news if you you are not secure in your identity. But when you are, that you're a beloved child of God, you can look at the mischief in your personality and that humiliation can become a great gift because it gets you at a gut level of, oh yeah, that's how I'm showing up in the world. That is helpful for me because I don't want to fast forward my life 10, 20, 30 years from now and still keep showing up in that way. You know, folks, one of the things that AJ mentioned, uh, he, he was uh, talking about one of Dallas Willard's more famous phrases that the gospel is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And that goes right in line with what we have been saying that the drum we've been banging here on the MLA podcast is that 2020 didn't create the condition of your soul, it exposed it. And if you don't do something different in 2021, you won't have a different experience. And it does take effort. You know, AJ's using the word effort. Uh, I'd use a very similar word, intentionality. In January, we launched a brand new community, an online community. It's called Capable Life. You can go check it out, www.capablelife.me. Jimmy and I are both on there. We're both coaches. And it's pretty simple. It's the MLA materials, just in bite-sized pieces, little 10-minute videos. You can watch one a week. You can watch one a day. It's an online confidential discussion forum. Right now, we've got right at 100 people from seven different countries on there. And some of the depth of conversation they are having with each other is just absolutely stunning. Talking about where, where they get in their own way, what makes them anxious, how, what, what kind of brave practice they're going to try this week to overcome these tendencies. We also do monthly Zooms with coaches. We do master classes where we dive deep into a, uh, oftentimes a family systems theory tool. Uh, our next masterclass is how do you handle criticism as a leader? And on that masterclass, we're going to be spending half of our time talking about the inner critic, the critic inside us, the giants in our shoulders. The other half will be what every church leader faces, which is those usual suspects that are coming after you or the thin skin you feel when someone has feedback. So you can go to capablelife.me to check out more. I, I just want to say there's a lot of ways for you to get help this year. I'm not making the claim that Capable Life is the only way. It is a good way. I hope you find some help. I, I hope you take AJ's challenge and put some effort in, which means sacrificing time and money and bravery. AJ pointed out in the interview, if you're listening carefully, he said, you know, we all have a vested interest to stay the way we are. And so this is a challenge to actually break free and experience some transformation. So CapableLife.me. And uh, without further ado, AJ, unfortunately, it is time for what some have called equal parts roller coaster ride and proctological exam, the gauntlet of anxiety questions. So uh, the first one, uh, I, I think I know the answer, but I'd be curious to see if your answer lines up. Where do you first notice anxiety in your body? 
between a spinning mind, a racing heart, and a tightening gut? Woo, yes. I would say I feel it pretty deeply in my heart. I'm an emotional person, and I, I can feel emotionally exhausted pretty quickly when I'm not in a good spot. And as an Enneagram 3, I'm now right on the edge of my Enneagram knowledge. We may have to ask Jimmy to step in and save us, but your repressed center would be your feeling, right? And in some ways, uh, it, that has become uh, the way in which I'm engaged the most is the way that I feel. Okay. Yeah, because as a three, you're taking in the world through your feelings primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You're in a particularly interesting situation for two reasons, I think. One is you stepped into an iconic church, and I think most of us, where our leadership is public, like you're a preacher, it's very vulnerable to put yourself out there. And so when you stepped into Mars Hill Bible Church, you're stepping you know, on the shoulders of Rob Bell, who planted it, and Shane Hips, both fairly well-known people. Now, most recently, you've stepped out of that and stepped into not just a new church, but a whole new culture as you're moving into an Anglican community. What kind of anxiety is generated in you when you are stepping into these new environments? You know, the the kind of anxiety that is generated most deeply is um, being when I feel misunderstood or potentially critiqued and it creates relational conflict. The harmony that I want with people creates a high degree of anxiety. And some of that I want harmony with people because I want them to like me because I can be deeply insecure. And then other parts of that is I genuinely care about people and I, I want to be in fellowship with them and for there to be harmony between us as we follow Jesus together. But I think when I start to feel like there is relational discord between myself and another person. I begin to ask all sorts of questions. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with them? What are other people going to think? All of these conversations start to start to occur for me. They impact my emotions. I get exhausted. And I sort of go inside and start to um, sort of internally try to work things out, which can lead to isolation. Yeah. So I'd like to dig deeper on that. I, I thought that was a fantastic answer. I, I think the nightmare scenario for most pastors that I know is the text or the email that simply says, we need to talk. And maybe it has more information, but basically it's important, it's urgent. Maybe, hey, I've got a group of people that are going to come meet with you. When you get that correspondence, what is the story you're telling yourself in your head? What did I say Sunday that was misunderstood? And then part B is, what's their problem? Right? Not like, oh, I wonder what's going on with them, but more of like, why would they have a problem with me? What's going on with them that would create them to actually have the audacity to have an issue with me? Right? <laughs> you've never, you've never received that text and say, they must be so excited to give a quarter million dollar check to the church. Right, right, right. Or, or you get that text of people are talking, right? This sort of ambiguous, people, whoever that is, or they have said, oh, well, who, who, who do you mean? Oh, well, we can't say that. We have to protect their anonymity. Like, oh my goodness. Well, having a source might be helpful. <laughs> we, uh, in our MLA work we do, we actually identify 29 unique sources of anxiety, uh, 29 universal sources of anxiety. So no matter how grounded you are, no matter your wiring, your Enneagram number, if it's this situation, it will generate anxiety. And one of them is the one you just named. We call it the phantom mob. Because it's like a cloud. You can't get, is it one peop, one or is it 50 people? 
And usually what happens, right, is the person who's bringing that to you, sometimes they're well-meaning. Sometimes they're just genuinely wanting you to know, hey, a lot of people are talking. But because their world is smaller in the church than your world, they think it's most of the church, right? And then they bring, hey, so many people and you get to the bottom of it, it's like seven, something like that. That's helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and excruciating. All right. Hey, uh, another thing that we love to do is really dive into how our family of origin shows up in all of our leadership situations, whether we want it to or not. What would be one trait that you've inherited from your family that's really been helpful? And what's one that gets in the way of your leadership? The one that's most helpful is commitment. My father and mother both modeled out for me uh, and their parents and their parents' parents of being committed to something and following through. The one that causes most mischief is efficiency. I tend to want to get things done quickly, efficiently, and when things drag out or conversations need to be had, it can suck my energy. Um, if my energy is like a, a, an icon on your iPhone of, of battery power, things that aren't efficient can sometimes feel like a massive drain on my battery for the day. And that can cause all sorts of mischief because I'll become sort of short, quick, um, maybe uh, a quick fuse, that sort of thing. So I have to step back and to make sure that, um, that I'm not uh, trying to be overly efficient. Very good. Thank you. One of the things I've been running into as I talk to faith leaders is a lot of us have a gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. And I, I think particularly preaching faith leaders or any faith leaders have a public side of their ministry. They can proclaim it better than they experience it. Is there a gap that you grapple with between what you know to be true about God and what you experience for yourself? Yeah, mine has to do a lot with the church, you know, especially being a pastor. I believe that God desires the church to give glimpses of a heavenly preview. And I don't always experience her or myself as such. Uh, I trust it and I trust God to make sense of those inconsistencies. But I often have felt in the last probably six years of ministry a gap between what the scripture say and proclaim is true about the church and how I and how we show up or don't show up. All right. The final question, you know, John casts this amazing vision in First John 4 where he says the perfect love casts out fear. And I've really enjoyed playing with the idea that love displaces anxiety. Like if, if perfect love casts out fear, then our anxiety, when we get caught up in ourselves, it can be displaced by love. And so I find it fascinating to ask everybody, AJ, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? I feel most love when I'm in nature, when I'm surrounded by trees and water. Creation is a real gateway for me into God's embrace of the whole world, including me. And I live in Charleston now where I have the most beautiful oaks just steps away from the Atlantic Ocean walking the beach. So to have trees and water, uh, it's one of the reasons we moved here uh, was to sort of find equilibrium with, you know, experiencing God's love and peace as we minister to the world. So nature has been really big for my soul. Yeah. AJ, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on. Jimmy, thanks for joining in the co-host role. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your heart and, and what you shared with us today. Yeah, true joy. Thanks for the work you both do. 
For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.